It is good to be with all of you today. I am so happy to be talking with you. Um, my name is Clayton Keenan. I work at Wheaton College in the chaplain's office. Most of the time I'm hanging out with undergrad students, with grad students. We're talking about how to follow Christ. We're talking about life and having a whole lot of fun. But it is really good to be with all of you today. I want to say hello to all of you who are in Bartlett or Blackberry Creek or DeKalb. It is good to be speaking to you also. I'm going to stop before I get too far into my message, though, because I want to kind of savor a moment here that isn't going to be able to be replicated. This is the moment when you're still happy to see me, because <laughs> given the topic of this morning, I'm not going to make many friends. So when Jim approached me and said, hey, do you want to speak? He said, hey, what do you want to talk about? And I said, well, you know, I really should probably do something pretty easy. I mean, I've never spoken at your church before. They don't know me. I don't know them. I just like give me an underhand pitch. So I can just knock it out of the park. That'd be great. He's like, how about hell? I'm like, how much hell, Jim? He's like, you know, a little fire, light on the brimstone, but just enough weeping and gnashing of teeth to keep it interesting. Let's do that. I'm like, all right, we'll see what we can do. Honestly, how many of you were a little nervous when you got here this morning and you saw what we were going to talk about? Okay, I was nervous, all right? Um, some of you were probably nervous because today was a day that you brought some friends and family. You thought, you know what, this is, this is baptism, it's going to be happy, it's exciting, let's show them our church. You probably even told them, you know what, this isn't one of those places where the preacher like screams and yells and freaks people out, and then some guest guy is here and he's going to go all sinners in the hands of an angry God on you, and you're like being like, can I sneak out of here? But the thing is, for people who are baptism guests, we put you right in the front so you can't escape. So there you go. Some of you are nervous because you are exploring the Christian faith, and there are probably a lot of things that you like about Jesus, some of the things he did, some of the things he said, and you're intrigued by this, but one of the things that keeps you from fully kind of crossing the line and embracing Jesus is hell. It just, you don't get it, it seems unappealing to you, and so to bring this up kind of feels like it's pushing back on the things that, that you don't really like about the Christian faith. Others of you, you're not interested in Christianity at all. This is not why you're here. Someone just dragged you here. You're, maybe you're here to support a friend. But for you, hell is the perfect example of everything that's wrong with religion. It, it's, it's the way that religious people try to control and coerce people with fear. It's, it's uh, hateful and intolerant. And so you just, this is exactly why you want nothing to do with God or religion or anything like it. This is, this is exact opposite. This is what you oppose. Hell's a tricky subject. I, I'll be honest, I'm not really excited about talking about hell. It, it's not the sort of thing that I think, you know, this is what really what I want to preach about. I would much rather come here and talk to you about how uh, Christ embraced the outcast and how he served the poor, about the kindness and the generosity of God. I would love to talk to you about all of these things. If you're the sort of person who actually enjoys talking about hell, you are a warped and twisted individual. <laughs> We don't talk about hell because we want to. We talk about hell because we need to. We're finishing up a series today called Untamed God. And for the past couple of weeks, Pastor Jim has been talking about this concept about the fear of God, which is something we don't talk about very much either. It's mentioned over 150 times in the Bible in both the Old and the New Testament. So even though we don't talk about it, it's very important according to Scripture. We are supposed to fear God. And one of the reasons we're supposed to fear God is because he's the one who determines our eternal destiny. He's the one that we will answer to for our life. So it would be foolish for us not to approach God with a bit of awe, with a bit of fear, with some seriousness. This is how Jesus talks about it in Luke chapter 12. He says this, I tell you, my friends, 
Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You got to remember here, this is Jesus talking. This is not some wild-eyed Old Testament prophet calling down plagues from heaven. This is Jesus. Judge not lest you be judged. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Jesus. This is who's speaking here about hell. And it may come as a surprise to many of you that most of the information we have about hell actually comes from Jesus. He talks about hell more than anybody else in the entire Bible. And so if Jesus thinks that hell is a real possibility for some people, it's something we ought to take very seriously. Now, this doesn't feel good for many of you because it messes with your picture of God. I remember talking with a a guy who was exploring the Christian faith, and we had some really good conversations about it. And he he kept saying to me, he said, Clayton, I I believe in God. I just believe in a God of love. I said, Dave, I I believe in a God of love. That's kind of what we've been talking about here. And he said, no, you don't. You believe in a God who would send people to hell. That is not loving at all. I will never believe in a God like that. And I understand where he's coming from. As we talked, it always felt like his God was nicer than my God. Like he had the upper ground in the conversation. Like I was trying to convince him of something that just wasn't appealing. It messes with our picture of God. And that's the real problem when it comes to talking about hell. It makes God seem vindictive and bloodthirsty and angry. And so we avoid talking about it because we're not sure we could believe in the sort of God who would send people to hell. Could that kind of God actually be good? Could he be loving? I love the image that was chosen for this series, the image of the lion. That line is drawn from C.S. Lewis's books, The Chronicles of Narnia. And in one of the first books, the, the character of Aslan is introduced. And he is introduced to a couple of uh, children, a few children who have never met him before. And when they find out he is a lion, they're terrified. They're like, we don't want, are, are we sure that he's safe? And the other characters in the book, they say, safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And that's the question I want to look at today. How can God be both unsafe and good at the same time? How can God be a loving God? The Bible is very clear that God is love. It says so in 1 John chapter 4, God is love. But what's very interesting is the same guy who wrote God is love, John, also wrote the passage we're going to look at today about hell. The Bible is just as clear that God is a God of judgment. So how do these two things go together? How can someone say unequivocally, God is love, but also say there is a hell? Can we do that? Let's turn to the passage we're going to look at today. It's in Revelation chapter 20. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me there. Revelation is the last book in the Bible, and this is one of the last chapters in that book. So if you just start at the end and flip forward a couple of pages, you'll find it. We're going to start in verse 11 here. Revelation 20, verse 11. Let me read it to you. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. 
The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. As with any passage of scripture, if you want to really understand it, you've got to look at the context in which it's written. You've got to look at what comes before, what comes after it. And so to really understand this passage, you need to know that what's being described in this portion of the book of Revelation is the end of the world. Well, actually, it's kind of the beginning of the world. What's happening is the old world has come to an end, and a new world is about to be created. And what Jesus is doing is he's deciding what comes from the old world into the new world. This is what it says in the verse that follows right after this passage in Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth... For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Jesus is looking at everything that has happened over the course of history, and he's deciding what the final verdict is going to be on everything that has happened and everyone who has ever lived. And he's going to say, this comes with and this is excluded. Because there are some things that if he brings them into the new world with him, they will poison the new world. So he says, these don't come with. So it's a very sobering scene. It's so scary that it says the universe itself tried to run away, tried to escape but there's no place found for it. In the passage, the image of a lake of fire is used. It's used to describe the fate of everything and everyone that doesn't make it into the new world. And I want to clear up before we get too far a misconception about this image of the lake of fire. It's not literal. Like most things in the book of Revelation, it's a symbol of a deeper reality. We don't believe that hell is some sort of fiery pit at the center of the earth, but it's an image of what hell might feel like. The, the more literal description of hell is found in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Paul describes hell like this. He says it's being shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Hell is being cut off from the presence of God. And if you're cut off from the presence of God, you are cut off from the source of everything that is good, all of all life and joy and beauty and happiness and truth and goodness. You are cut off from everything that makes life worth living. In this life, none of us are fully cut off from God. No matter what we do, no matter how far we run from God, God is present in, in such a way that we always still have glimpses of beauty and life and joy and goodness. But in hell, all of that is gone. And that is such a horrifying, terrible experience that the writers of Scripture are grasping at images to try to convey just how bad it is. So it, it, the, the Bible uses images like fire and darkness and this weeping and gnashing of teeth and all this stuff to get at how bad it would be to be completely cut off from the presence of God. We have to ask ourselves, what does it mean about God that he would do something like this? That he would exclude some people from the joy of his presence. What I want to say today is that I actually think that this shows us just how good God is. It actually shows us at least three things. The reality of hell shows us three things about the goodness of God. The first is this. Hell shows us how good God is because hell shows us how seriously God takes people. Hell shows us how seriously God takes people. Most of the time when we read passages in the Bible, it's talking about situations that we were never present for. It's things that happened a long time ago in places far away. But what's interesting about this passage is this is a scene that you and I will be present for. This is a situation that we will experience firsthand. Look at what it says. It says, the dead 
great and small, were standing before the throne. And John says that each person was judged. Everyone who has ever existed will be there. You and I will be present for this. No one is exempt from judgment. Every human being will stand before God. And why is that? It's because human beings have a special role in God's world. You'll notice that God doesn't line up all of the lions and parakeets and gerbils to judge them, and he doesn't have books of of, of records of actions from cocker spaniels and kangaroos. Only people are present for judgment. And it's because God gave people a special assignment. I don't know how many of you were here uh, about a month ago when Pastor Jim was opening his series on work. He talked about Genesis 1 and 2, the beginning of the world, where God created people. And he talked about how God gave human beings this assignment of being image bearers, to, to reflect the image and character of God, to imitate God, to join in what God is doing. And because we were made in the image of God, we are also rulers God gave us responsibility for his world to be kings and queens over creation. We were given a very high calling. And this is important because if someone has been given greater responsibility, there are greater consequences when we misuse the authority and responsibility that we have been given. If I go on vacation and I ask you to mow my lawn and to water my garden and you don't do it and I come back, I'm going to be a little bit annoyed, but not too annoyed because I probably wouldn't have done it even if I were here, so no big deal. But if I lend you my car and you get in an accident, it's going to be a more serious consequence. I'm going to be more upset. You're probably going to have to pay for some of the damages. But if I let you watch my kid and you take them to a mall or a park and you lose them, well, the consequences just got really intense, didn't it? God didn't just ask us to mow his lawn or to drive his car. He gave us his world, the world that he loves and he made. Human beings matter. Our actions, our decisions, our behavior matters to God. What we do is important. You would have to have a low view of humanity and a low view of yourself to think that your sin doesn't affect anyone or anything else around you. God doesn't have a low view of humanity. He takes us very, very seriously. And that's why when we make decisions that go contrary to the way of God, he lets us reap the consequences of those decisions. One of the things that this means is that God will not force someone to be with him who doesn't want to be with him. Heaven is the place where God is, and if you don't want to be with God, he's not going to make you come to heaven. This is one of the things that people often misunderstand about heaven and hell. They think of heaven as sort of the pleasure factory. It's the place where all your wildest dreams and desires finally come true. If you're an outdoorsman, you're going to be out there. You're going to be hunting and hiking and doing all this stuff for all eternity. If you just want to relax, heaven is going to be sitting on a beach with a mixed drink for all of eternity. Or if you just want to eat cupcakes and bacon forever, that's what you're going to do. It's going to be awesome. Whatever you want, boom, it happens. But that's not actually how the Bible describes heaven. The Bible simply describes heaven as the place where God lives. Look at what it says in verse 3 of Revelation 21. It says, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. You see, the difference between heaven and hell is not the difference between pleasure and pain. It's the difference between life with God and life without God. And if you're not the sort of person who enjoys God, you're not going to enjoy heaven. Think of it this way. What if I told you that I had purchased concert tickets for you and I was just going to give them to you for free? You'd say, that's probably, that's awesome. That's great. 
And what if I told you, I actually got you VIP passes. You're going to go backstage. You're going to meet the artists. You're going to talk with them, hang out with them after the show. What do you think about that? You'd be like, well, that sounds pretty cool. But what if I then told you that the artist was Justin Bieber? Some of you are like, yes, now let's go. Can we do this now, now? And you are 15 years old or you are that guy who is overly excited for some reason. I'm not sure about him. (laughs) Others of you are like, how much do I have to pay you to avoid this fate? You see, God is a lot like Justin Bieber. He's a polarizing figure. And yes, I am the first pastor in history to ever compare God to Justin Bieber. Congratulations, you are here for it. Some people love him, some people hate him. They want to do everything they can to avoid being in his presence. Another way to think about it would be like this. For some people, being in a non-smoking environment is an appealing thing. You you don't smoke, and so you think, I don't want to inhale secondhand smoke, and I like being in public where you're not allowed to smoke. Others of you, you smoke, and so for you, you kind of have a nicotine addiction, and to be in a non-smoking environment is not a, a comfortable thing in a prolonged period of time. You actually have to leave the environment to get your fix of your addiction. Heaven's a little bit like that. There are a lot of things that are excluded from heaven, things like self-centeredness and grudges and greed and arrogance. And if you're the sort of person who can't live without those things, you're going to be real uncomfortable in heaven. If you are addicted to sin like most of us are, heaven is going to be an unpleasant place. As odd as it may sound, everyone who is in hell has opted out of heaven. This is the way C.S. Lewis said it. He said, there are only two kinds of people, those who say, thy will be done to God, And those to whom God in the end says, thy will be done. When God sends people out of his presence, he is giving them exactly what they want. It's not that they want hell, but they don't want to be with God. God is giving them over to the self-destructive choices that they have made and letting them reap the consequences. Hell shows us just how seriously God takes people. But hell also shows us just how seriously God takes evil. And this is the one of the ways that it shows us that he is good. Again, it's important to understand what's happening in this scene here in Revelation 20. King Jesus is sitting on the throne, and he's finally going to make a call about everything that's happened in the world. He's going to fulfill one of the deep desires of the human heart to have true justice in the world. He's going to look at all of the injustice, all of the selfishness, all of the the crimes and, and wickedness that has happened in the world, and he's going to call it for what it is once and for all, and everybody's going to know this is evil. He's going to call good, good, and evil, evil. For the first time ever, we are going to have an unbiased judge declare what is right and wrong. This is why the image of the books is so important in this passage. We're told that everyone is judged according to what was, they had done as recorded in the books. The books symbolize a reliable record of what's happened in our lives. For the first time ever, there will be no spin, no ambiguity. All will come to light. And no one will say on that day, you know what, Jesus, you missed something. You could have done it better. I'm not quite sure that was fair. Couldn't we kind of have a redo of this trial? I want to make an appeal. No, everyone is going to shut their mouth and they're going to say, if anything, you did it right. This is justice. Now we see. But in order to do this, Jesus is going to have to get angry. He's going to have to get angry. You see, the more that we care about something, the more we are angered and upset when it is damaged or lost. 
I, I was helping a, a friend move into their new house this weekend, and most of my friends are at the point of life where they're kind of settling down into a house, and they're not moving very often. But for our group of friends, when we were in our 20s, we were moving all the time. Every year, we'd go to a new apartment, and probably once a month during the summer, I would be moving somebody and taking their stuff. Now, over the course of all of these different moves, I learned a little bit about myself. I learned that I am the clumsy mover. Okay, so if you have me move your house, you know what? I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'll lift heavy things. I'll, I'll do whatever you ask. But I know, you, you just have to understand this, that I'm going to drop at least one thing during the move. It's going to happen. So I have learned to live by a very simple rule. Let the owners carry the valuable stuff. <laughs> so you lose a lot less friends if you break a $15 target lamp than if you drop grandma's collection of china, okay? People get way more upset when they value something more. That's how this works. When you love something, you are more angered when it is damaged or destroyed. And when someone does it on purpose, when someone deliberately hurts someone or something you love, you get angry at them. And in fact, there are some situations where it would be unloving not to be angry. You ought to be angry when your friend is mugged. You ought to be angry when a handicapped person is cheated out of money. You ought to be angry when your sister is raped. You ought to be angry when a child is a victim of child pornography. You would be an evil person not to be angry at those things. If you heard about those things, you saw those things, and you just shrugged and said, eh, no big deal, you would be a terrible, terrible person. The opposite of love is not anger, it is indifference. God takes our sins seriously because sin harms the people and the world that he loves. In fact, if God didn't get angry at sin, he would not be a loving God. When God gets angry, it is not because he is getting ticked off about petty irritations. It is not because he is a control freak just trying to have his own way. It is not because he is an abusive parent who's flying off the handle in an unpredictable fit of rage. God gets angry because he is a passionate lover, and the ones that he loves are being harmed. One author put it this way, God's wrath is not a cranky explosion. It is his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race that he loves with his whole being. Hell is the expression of God's anger at sin that is destroying his world and his people. And if God didn't punish sin and evil in hell, he wouldn't be good. Hell shows us just how seriously God takes evil. Now, at this point, some of you are probably thinking, okay, I kind of get where you're coming from, but I've never done those things. Most of the people I know haven't done those things. I've never killed anyone. I've never raped anyone. This is not me. I mean, I'm not going to say I'm perfect, but... I'm a pretty good person, and I'm pretty sure the things I've done are not enough to anger God. Like, big stuff, sure. Me, ah, not so much. And that's a, a good question. It's a good point to raise because we don't feel like we're bad people. Most of the time we feel like we're pretty decent people. But that's something you want to question a little bit because you don't want to have an assumption like that that's unchecked and show up before God feeling really confident and not realize where you actually stand. So let's think about this for a second. Let's just go with some of the big things that most of us agree are right and wrong. The, th the big things that God asked us to do. We'll just take a few of the Ten Commandments and see how we're doing, okay? What it, what, ten Commandments. One of them is, do not lie. How many of you have never lied? Raise your hand if you have never lied. This is your chance to commit the sin right now. You could do it. 
Do not steal. Any of you taken anything that didn't belong to you? Honor your father and mother. I want you to think about every rolled eye, every shouting match, every mocking comment behind their back. And I'm not just talking about children and teenagers. Most adults that I know have a really hard time honoring mom and dad. Do not covet your neighbor's stuff. I have never seen that happen out here in the suburbs. (laughs) Do not commit adultery. Now, the statistics say that many of you in this room have committed or will commit adultery in your life. But even if you haven't, Jesus says that if you lust after someone, if you fantasize about having sex with someone you are not married to, you have committed adultery in your heart and you are just as guilty. Do not murder. Again, Jesus says, if you call your brother a fool, if you hate someone in your heart, you are guilty of murder. And what about the big one? Have no other gods before me. Have any of you ever put something first before God? For people who think we're pretty good, it turns out we're not real great at getting the big stuff right. The reason we can fool ourselves into thinking we're good people is that most of us live a life of cowardly small sin. Most of us don't sin in real flashy ways. I know this is true about me. On the day when the books are open and you see the real record of my life, let me tell you what you're going to see. You're going to see a lifetime of minor snubs and slights against my coworkers and friends. You're going to see petty rivalries and grudges. You're going to hear the cutting words that I've said to my wife when no one was listening. You're going to see the times when I blew up at my kids for no reason. You're going to see all the ways I've shirked my responsibilities at work and at home, the ways I've nurtured secret addictions, the ways I've fostered quiet disdain for the people around me. You're going to see all the ways that I ignored people in need when I could have done something to help. You're going to see my indifference to pain and suffering in the world. You're going to see my stinginess, my lack of trust, the way I bend the rules to my advantage but hold other people to a strict standard. You're going to see my avoidance of pain, my silence at injustice, and all of the ways I make myself look good at the expense of other people. And you're going to see a whole lot more than that. Day in and day out, all of those little things those things that seem like they're no big deal at the end, they're going to be shown for what they are. A declaration that I am the God of my world. I am the center of my universe. I'm the most important person that I know. It is going to be shown to be a life of quiet but steady rebellion against the Most High God. Here's the truth about me. I am not a good person. Look at what it says in Revelation 21.8. It says, The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars... They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the sexually immoral, all liars. That's me. And that's you. Here's the thing that we have to admit. Each one of us has participated in and contributed to the mass of selfishness and sin that is poisoning the world. We are part of the problem. And so on the day when Jesus decides what he's going to take from the old world into the new world, we're going to have a hard time making a case that we belong. If God takes evil seriously, we're in real trouble. And that is why the third thing we see here is such good news. Hell also shows us just how seriously God takes love. Notice what it says in verse 12 of Revelation 20. He says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, 
which is the book of life. Thank God for that other book. A little later in Revelation 21, 27, it says this, nothing impure will enter heaven, nor anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Whose book is it? It's the Lamb's book of life. Who's the Lamb? Jesus. Yeah, why is he called the Lamb? He's called the Lamb because he was sacrificed. You see, it's called the Lamb's Book of Life because in order for Jesus to write someone's name in that book, he had to die for them first. Here's what happened. This is, this is how hell is sort of twists things on its head. This notion of the Book of Life twists things about hell on its head. When Jesus came to earth and he died on the cross, what was he doing? He was leaving heaven the joy of the presence of God the Father, and he was coming into our world to live life with us. And for the first time ever, someone lived a perfect life. Jesus lived a perfect life as a human being. He was the only one who's ever done it. He's the only one who can stand before God and say, yes, I deserve heaven. I belong in the new world. I have never done anything to harm your people or hurt your world. I am worthy. Jesus is the only person who's ever lived a life that he doesn't deserve condemnation. He doesn't deserve to be punished. He does not deserve deserve to be cut off from the presence of God. But what's interesting is that's exactly what happened to him. On the cross, when Jesus died, he was separated from God. He took our punishment. He took the death that we deserved and he died it in our place. This is how Isaiah describes it. The prophet Isaiah says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. First Peter 3 says it like this, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. The innocent one suffered for the guilty so that the guilty could go free. How did Jesus suffer? Well, he suffered the physical pain of torture and death on a cross, but he suffered much more than that. He suffered the spiritual anguish of being cut off from God. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only person who had never rejected God experiences God's rejection. Up until this point, Jesus has had the most perfect, pure oneness with God the Father. He has never been cut off from communion with God ever for a moment in his life. But now he is utterly forsaken. He experiences being shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, which is the way that Paul describes hell. On the cross, as Jesus carries the sins of the world, God the Father turns away from him and Jesus experiences the separation from God that is hell. This is how great the love of God is for us. He left the glory and joy of heaven to experience the depths of hell for you and for me. This is how much God loves us. I know that the idea of hell is really troubling for a lot of you. I can't say that I'm comfortable with it myself. But there is one thing in all of our questions about hell that we cannot say. We cannot say that God created hell and then exempted himself from experiencing it. The guy who's sitting on the throne is also the guy who's been to hell. This is the love of God. He took hell so that you wouldn't have to. And the only question that matters at this point is how will you respond to a love like that? You see, the way to benefit from what Jesus has done is to simply say to God, I, I can't do it. 
I can't make it on my own. I have to trust you. It's to pray the prayer that says, God, I know that on the last day when I stand before you, I will not deserve to be with you. I will not make it on my own. The only way I'll make it is if you forgive me. I need Jesus to stand in my place because I don't dare stand before you alone. Forgive me, God. I give myself to you. I trust you with my life and my eternity. I am yours. You are my king. You are my savior. Take me. When we say that to God, that's all it takes. You don't have to do anything special to get your name written in the book of life. You don't have to earn anything. You don't have to qualify in some way. All you have to say, the only difference really between someone who's a follower of Christ and someone who isn't is that we say, I know I'm not a good person. I know I don't deserve heaven. I know that only Jesus is good, and so I trust him with my life. That's the difference. That's all it takes. So what are you going to do? How are you going to respond? Remember, God is not going to force you to spend eternity with him if you don't like him, if you don't want to be with him. But here's the question. If he's the sort of God who would take hell and death for you, if he loves you that much, why wouldn't you want to spend your entire life and all of eternity getting to know him? Why wouldn't you want to be with him forever if he's so full of grace and kindness and mercy? What would keep you from a God like that? Some of you are visitors. This is your first time here. And maybe this is your first time really in a church where you've kind of heard all of this laid out. This is the first time you've gotten this full explanation of things. And probably it raises some questions. That's okay. That's probably a good thing. You're taking it seriously if, if you've got questions. And you want to talk to someone more about this? If you came with someone, I would encourage you to ask them the questions that are going on in your mind right now, or, or at least share the thoughts you're thinking. Or if you want to talk with someone after the service, you can go to the Welcome Center, and I'm sure there would be people who would be happy to talk with you more about this. Others of you, you've been around for a while, and this isn't the first time you've heard this message. You know about what Jesus has done, and you're, you've been exploring for a while, and that's okay, but you're kind of dragging your feet now. And you're sort of, sort, of, sort of not going towards the line anymore. You're sort of just staying where you are. And I understand that, but I want to give you a friendly warning, a loving warning. You don't have forever. The end will come. Eternity will arrive. And time will be out. So what are you waiting for? What's keeping you? It's far too important to sit on your hands. Others of you, you are followers of Christ. You've been followers of Christ for a long time, and you love this message of God's grace. It is so good. We're here on a day when people are being baptized, and we are celebrating people being rescued from death into life, and you just love this. You, just, you come here every week, and you worship, and you sing, and you celebrate what God has done. But what's interesting is that as much as you like that, it doesn't create much urgency for you to talk to anybody else about it. You never talk to your friends and your family and your neighbors about what Jesus has done. And I just want to remind you what the stakes are here. The people that you know and love, there is no guarantee that they will avoid hell unless they trust in Jesus Christ. And the only way they're going to be able to trust in Jesus Christ is if someone tells them about him, and that someone is someone like you. So the question is, will you love your friends and family enough? If Jesus loved them enough to experience hell and die for them, will you love, love them enough to tell them what he did? If that's a hard conversation that you need to have, we'll be praying for the Spirit to empower you. Maybe it's as simple as this. 
You just invite someone to come here in an environment that you know they're going to hear that message. If people show up here, they're going to hear about what Jesus has done for them. Maybe you want to bring them in a couple of weeks when Nick Walenda is here and you want to hear his story, and that would be a great way to expose them to this good news. Or maybe you want to bring them to pack a box with you for Operation Christmas Child and, and there they'll encounter this. Or just come to a weekend service. Pastor Jim and the other pastors, they talk about this all the time. And they're going to hear it. But whatever you do, be courageous and take a step because this is life and death for all eternity for them. Will you love them enough to do something? We have good news to share. Our God takes us seriously. He takes evil seriously. And he takes love seriously enough to go through hell and death in order to save us. Jesus is king and he is on the throne. He is not safe, but he is good. Let's pray to him. Heavenly Father, I thank you for a day like this, a day when people are being baptized and declaring before everyone that they belong to you, that they have died to sin, that they are alive to you, that you are their God. I thank you for these lives that are being marked today. God, I thank you even for this message. It it is a hard one to hear, to talk about hell like this. But we thank you for being loving enough to tell us what the stakes are in our life. God, I I pray for those here who have never crossed the line, who have never trusted themselves to you. God, some of them now want to make that commitment. They, They want to come before you. And so we pray with them this prayer. We say, God, we know that we are sinners. God, we know that we don't deserve heaven, that we deserve hell. God, we know that we will not be able to stand before you on the final day and say that we are good. God, only you are good. And so we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your grace. We trust Jesus to stand in our place for us. God, we give you our lives and our eternity. You are our king. You are our savior. We are yours. God, for those of us who have prayed this prayer many times, those of us who've embraced this, God, we ask for the courage to share this with other people, the people that we love so deeply. We ask that when we go and speak to them, that you would already be moving in their hearts, that they would be thirsty to hear this message, and that we would be people who are are like bringing water to dying people. God, I pray that you would be at work in us even the rest of today that you would assure us of your love and your justice and your goodness, that we would worship and praise you, and that you would be pleased even with what happens next. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.